for a choice of the nation Our chieftain so brave and so true And we'll go for the great reformation For Lincoln and Liberty too We'll go for the son of Kentucky The hero who drew him through The pride of the sucker so lucky For Lincoln The Army of the Potomac I have just read your commanding general's preliminary report of the Battle of Fredericksburg. Although you were not successful, the attempt was not an error, nor the failure other than an accident. The courage with which you and an open field maintained the contest against an entrenched foe, and the consummate skill and success with which you crossed and recrossed the river in face of the enemy, show that you possess all the qualities of a great army, which will yet give victory to the cause of the country and of popular government. Condoling with the mourners of the dead and sympathizing with the severely wounded, I congratulate you that the number of both is comparably so small. I tender you, officers and soldiers, the thanks of the nation. All right, uh, welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Um, now, obviously, in each episode of this podcast, I look at a small slice of American writing, um, 100 pages at a time, uh, using the Library of America as my main source material. And currently, I am working on the, the writings of Abraham Lincoln as part of a, a larger series on 19th century political writing. And we're coming to the end. We, we've come to uh, 19, 18, sorry, 1862, um, probably the, the bleakest period of the American Civil War from the perspective of, of Lincoln, but also uh, the year in which one of its, its greatest achievements was, was um, um, or one of Lincoln's greatest achievements, and that would be the Emancipation Proclamation. Of course, not signed formally until Jan not for formally implemented till January first, eighteen sixty-three. But it was um, written down and, and, and kind of set um, set down in the summer of of eighteen sixty-two. So, in this episode, we're going to go through the writings in this collection covering the year of eighteen sixty-two. And there's actually quite a lot to talk about. So this, this, um, I'll try to be as brief as I can be in going through what what I think are the most important elements of of Lincoln's writings. Um, as with the previous episodes here, except for maybe the Lincoln Douglas debate, which were, which were the, rather contained, we have a lot of different documents to kind of shift through. A lot of letters, a lot of um, public uh, statements, not too many long speeches. We got states, the State of the Union addressed, other addresses to Congress. So we got a lot of uh, sort of documents. So really what I'm going to try to do is, is synthesize this into what I think are the most important issues um, taking place in this year. Um, now, I'm going to focus on three things in this episode. Um, and what those three things are, uh, obviously one is going to be emancipation and uh, what Lincoln was thinking about emancipation, which we saw in the last episode at the end of 1861, he was already trying to push Congress to implement a compensated emancipation program for the border states, but I think for Delaware um, was where it was going to go first. Um, and that was, and then he was still talking about colonization and things like that in 1861. Now we know that pretty much just a year later, he, he issues his Emancipation Proclamation, which frees all the slaves uh, in, the, in the South, in Confederate held territory, which I think at the time was some 3 million or 3.5 million. Maybe it must have been a little bit less because some of the, I think there were 3.5 million slaves in the Confederacy in the states that seceded at the start of the war. And, and of course, some of that land was occupied. Um, so it would have been less than that, but, but maybe around those 3 million or so. 
that that lived in the south they were they were freed although not in kind of in name only of course but it did open up the possibility for more to run away to pick up arms and because part of that was also the arming of of black soldiers so that rapid change in his point of view uh to embrace uh, emancipation of course the theories about that are just basically three um that historians mostly kind of hover around one would be like just Lincoln is, you know, waiting for his moment to be the great emancipator. Um, that's kind of the, the, the more classical, traditional, um, heroic view of Lincoln, uh, that he couldn't do it early in the war, but at this point he could, and so he, he pushed forth. He's something he always wanted to do. The second would be that enslaved men and women, or, you know, men and women who freed themselves, I should say, by running away to, to Union-held territory, to armies, forced an unsustainable situation on the on the on the government, leading to uh, the inevitable um, choice to to free the slaves by the government, and then I, the third is kind of related, but it's a little bit slightly different, and that would be military defeat finally forced Lincoln to issue the Emancipation Proclamation to try to weaken the Confederacy and you know get new soldiers to to fill the dwindling numbers because of defeat after defeat in 1862. So that's going to be one issue is emancipation. The second is going to be Lincoln as commander-in-chief, right? As we talked again about the last episode, you know, we didn't see so much of it in there because there was not that much fighting in 1861 compared to the next year. But, uh, you know, Lincoln was had a hands-on approach to, to running the army uh, throughout 1862. And throughout the rest of the war, you know, appointing generals, writing letters to generals, pushing them to, to fight, scolding them for not doing what he thought was enough. Uh, sometimes they read like a little lot, a lot of armchair chair generaling, but other times, you know, Lincoln does show um, some intuition about military matters. And he was often disappointed with his soldiers not taking advantage of what he thought were the natural advantages of, of, of the Union Army. Um, he certainly didn't think you know, that the Confederacy had any kind of advantage in, in nobility or skill or, 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 you know, just the talent on the field. So he thought there was no reason for these, um, these defeats were a result of something other than, um, other than like Confederate uh, superiority in, in command. Um, so he, he often was scolding his commanders. And, and sometimes it comes off as he's been a little bit too armchair generalish. Um, of course, he's commander in the chief. He had the right to interfere. So it's a little bit different. You know, it's maybe the wrong term to, to say that. But sometimes he does show, I, I do think he shows, uh, you know, that he shows cap capacity to be a military leader. And I think ultimately one of the reasons the Union did win the war um, was because of the, uh, the the willingness of Lincoln to change command, to experiment, to to promote people from within the military, to fire people who weren't being effective. Things that the, the more aristocratic South really didn't happen as much. You know, you have basically the same commanders throughout the war. There, um, so we'll talk about that. And the third thing we'll look at um, will be kind of how I'm getting this from something that Lincoln says, and I think it's this. State of the Union for 1862, where he talks about how essentially wars change society. And so that that led me to think, man, this is really should be a theme of its own. And that is how did war, the Civil War, change society, American society, and change the state? And how did Lincoln, um, how, how was Lincoln part of that, those changes? And how did he respond to and observe those changes? So those are the th three things I'm going to talk about as we kind of work our way through these, these, some of these documents, at least. There's quite a lot of them.
All right, one more thing just to get out of the way, and that is to talk about what, what, what happened in the war in 1862. If you are not that familiar with Civil War history, um, the major battles and events, I'll just briefly go through it. Um, we can kind of, you know, as always, we, we sort of divide up our study of the Civil War into, into kind of the Eastern theater, the Eastern campaigns, mostly in Virginia, and then the, the Western campaigns, which, you know, were on the Mississippi River and then the Atlantic campaign. There, there's kind of the two of them that were pursued simultaneously. Um, so basically, yeah, three. And it, this comes out of the Anaconda strategy, which was established early in the war, and that was to cut the South basically into three parts and to blockade it. Uh, those three parts would be by uh, seizing the Mississippi and then seizing Atlanta. Um, so that meant there basically had to be three major fronts, and, and that's how it worked out. Just oversimplifying it, there was also fighting farther west and naval battles and, and, um, and things like that. But basically, it's Mississippi, it's Tennessee, um, and then and then Virginia. So in in the in the Eastern theater first, like in Virginia, um, the you know the the early part of, of 1862 there wasn't that much fighting going on. Under this time, the army was under the command of General McClellan, and the overall policy of Lincoln was was attack was to put pressure on the Confederates and, and seize Richmond, and he wanted McClellan to do that. But he basically delayed and delayed, obviously, and this is a big issue in, in the Civil War history. Um, you know, was it right to do that? Did he give the army the time to prepare? You know, whatever. But ultimately, there's a campaign that's pursued by by basically landing troops kind of southeast, I think, of Richmond on a peninsula, and then and then marching from there to 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 Richmond. The Confederates come there. Uh, and it's during this campaign that Robert E. Lee takes command of the Confederate troops in Virginia. And in a series of six battles over the course of, of seven days, the, the Union Army is driven from this, this attempt to take Richmond um, and, and basically defeated. At the same, or on the same time, this would have been a little like me in June, the, the so-called Seven Days Campaign was at, in, from June 25th to July 1st. From May to June, you had a campaigning in the Shenandoah Valley, basically kind of in the you know, West Virginia area, uh, where uh, a Confederate general named Jackson, uh, you know, basically occupied several Union armies, keeping them from that fight around Richmond uh, over a series of, of battles. So these were pretty much all Confederate victories. Um, now, in August 29, you have a, a sec the, the second battle of Bull Run. You know, the first battle was in 1861. A year, around, a year, year later was the second battle of Bull Run, another the defeat for the Union army. Um, then this led Robert E. Lee to attempt to invade the North and a, and a goal, I think, to eventually, um, pr you know, force peace negotiations. Uh, this culminated in a battle in Maryland on September 17th, the Battle of Antietam, um, which, which resulted, was a Union victory, led for, Lee was forced to withdraw to, back to Virginia, and it led to Lincoln passing the, or, or signing the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, which would go into effect January 1st of the next year. And then um, the next major battle in the Eastern Theater was on December 13th, and that was Fredericksburg. And that's the battle I talked about at the beginning, a horrific defeat for um, the Union, where they tried to attack some entrenched positions in the town. And, and it was, of course, cold. It was uh, close to Christmas time and, and uh, you know, a really bloody battle from the Union. So basically, pretty much defeat after defeat. In, in Virginia, a few small victories, but largely uh, a year of defeat and a year of defeat close to Washington. And, and of course, Lincoln 
is trying to be commander in chief in these times. So that's, uh, you know, part of the context of this is his leadership. He's trying different commanders. He's uh, putting a lot of pressure on them to be to to attack, which maybe led to some military disasters. I don't know. I'm not the military historian, but I can just kind of observe this by looking at his documents. All right. So that's what's going on in the East. In the Western theater, um, in the early part of the year, it's more successful for the Union, basically Union successes in the in the West. Missouri and Kentucky were essentially secured um, as part of the Union. There was not there wasn't this anxiety about Kentucky leaving anymore. And, and for, they became battlefields of the war. But eventually Kentucky and Missouri were secured early on. So this this fighting is the, the major battle in this in this year in this part of the country was at Shiloh, April 6th to 7th, 1862. Um, an important battle because it really was key to Grant's rise to prominence in the military. Um, uh, but that was a Union victory. Um, around the same time, April of 1862, you had the capture of New Orleans in the south. Now, the capture of New Orleans is important because this is the first and Louisiana is, is essentially the first state that fully experienced what we could call a reconstruction, right? Where you have West Virginia. I guess those are the two examples. West Virginia, you know, basically doesn't join the Confederacy. Those counties in Western Virginia, they stay in the Union and they eventually enter in as their own states. So they kind of go through a reconstruction process. But Louisiana was the first kind of state that seceded that was pretty much fully occupied by the Union early in the war. And then you had these issues of what do you do with slaveholders? What do you do with slaves? What do you do with, uh, you know, what do you do with local political leadership, right? Those questions of reconstruction had to be worked out in Louisiana first. And, and the capture of New Orleans kind of opened up that conversation. Um, and then you had the capture of Memphis in June 6. So uh, that strategy of, of trying to seize the Mississippi, uh, the victory of Shiloh followed by the seizure of Memphis and New Orleans show the progress in, in seizing um, the, the Mississippi River, eventually culminating in the summer of 1863 in the siege of Vicksburg and the, the seizure of the whole of the Mississippi River. So that's your battles. So if you want to simplify it, if, if you're not a Civil War aficionado and you don't care about the details, kind of successes in the West for the Union, um, defeats in, in Virginia, defeats and frustration in, in Virginia. All right, so let's jump into these documents. Now, right away, when we jump into these documents, you'll notice this, this what you want to, might want to call, you know, interference is the wrong word. It's, it's just that before, prior to this, no U.S. president really cared about military matters. The, you know, he was commander in chief, according to the Constitution. But, you know, there was a commanding general that was appointed and he dealt with the, with the war. And, you know, that, of course, during the revolution, he didn't have a president. And then during the War of 1812 and the, and the Mexican War, you know, they were, those were other people handled that. The presidents weren't involved. Lincoln did, you know, notably get involved in the war and he cared a lot about the war effort. And, and you see that in the letters he, he wrote. For instance, in January 13th, 1862, he wrote uh, a letter to Don C. Buell uh, with a copy sent to General Halleck. These are all, all generals that are in this conversation. And here's, what, here's a bit of what he writes. He says, as to General McClellan's views, you understand your duty in regard to them better than I do. With this preliminary, I state my general idea of this war to be that we have the greater numbers and the enemy has a greater facility of concentrating forces upon points of collision. That we must fail unless we can find some way of making our advantage an overmatch for his. 
so that this can only be done by menacing him with superior forces at different points at the same time, so we can safely attack one or both if he makes no change. And if he weakens one to strengthen the other, forbear to attack the strengthened one, but siege and hold the weakened one, gaining so much. And he goes on a little bit about a little bit more on the strategy, but basically the idea is we have to we have the forces capable of attacking in force in many places. They can only defend one in force at the same time, right? Now it's a bit of a a game boardish strategy. The, the actual military details are, are different, but in the end, he was right. You know, by that, that, that eventually what Grant sort of embraces in his when he takes over uh, command of the military, right? Now, this idea culminates in the President's General Order Number One. This is issued on January twenty seventh. So we're we're you know months into the war by this point, and this is the General Order Number One. So this is the first. I don't know how how many he eventually implemented. Um, but it's a very quick order. It's very short, considering its ramifications, where it basically tells every single army, you know, the, uh, the Potomac, Western Virginia, the flotilla at Cairo, that's in Tennessee, uh, well, Illinois, Kentucky, I, I mean, uh, on the border there, uh, naval force in the Gulf of Mexico. He mentions all these, and, and he just says, you all should, you know, basically be ready to attack and, and, and should attack. Um, he says, a general movement, he calls it a general movement of the land and naval forces of the United States against the insurgent forces. Doesn't give the details, of course, that's probably not really his um, expertise, but he says everyone should be on the offensive, all units should be on the offensive. Um, probably thinking forward to a spring campaign that he wanted to hopefully end the war. Um, and that's the, the feeling you get in these documents um, throughout this year. I'm sure it's the case throughout the war, too, is just this. Um, but especially in this year, where with the, we had that frustration of, of especially McClellan not really engaging the enemy directly, as he wants them to push push as, as hard as possible. And but sometimes he does sort of does do this micromanaging. For instance, on May twenty eighth, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. He writes to George McClellan, "I'm very glad of General F. J. Porter's victory. Still, if it." If it was a total rout to the enemy, I'm puzzled to know why the Richmond and Fredericksburg Railroad was not seized. Again, as you say, you have all the railroads, but the Richmond and Fredericksburg, I'm puzzled to see how lacking that you can't have any except a scrap from Richmond to West Point. The scrap of the Virginia Central from Richmond to Hanover Junction without more is simply nothing. I think the whole force of the enemy is country in Richmond. And then he goes on like that. But very specific, like saying, if you defeated them, why didn't you push farther right and that's something he talks a lot about in these letters to generals and commanders is you know if you know why didn't you annihilate the enemy in this battle right why didn't you do do more he certainly felt this way after for instance the battle of antietam and then later on after the battle of gettysburg but there was an opportunity to really destroy them utterly and i, I think i don't know i'm not a military historian i i don't i'm not really an expert on that but i get the sense that there's still this feeling when you kind of look back at the Napoleonic Wars, right? That there would be one decisive battle and then the war would be over, right? Like, you know, like Napoleon defeated the Austrians in one big battle, right? And that battle led to the capitulation of Austria and then they had to sign a peace treaty with, with France. That, that idea of one decisive battle being the end of the war was something in military logic, I think even into World War I, that idea existed, right? That, of course, part of that's just general optimism. The war will be over by summer or the war will be over by fall, that kind of feeling. But also in a frustration over, you know, if, if Alexander could topple the Persian Empire in one big battle, why can't we do the same thing, right? And, of course, 
war had changed. The Civil War was in many ways a total war, right? Where the total resources of society were being mobilized. It, it was a war that required the United States to occupy, you know, all this territory, right? The territory the size of Western Europe. So, you know, and certainly he was aware of that, but he still, I think there's this idea of the, the knockout blow. Um, but I don't need to mention them all, but there's just a lot of documents here that show that, that, um, that attitude of, of Lincoln's to, to aggressively, pushing commanders to, to aggressively um, confront the enemy. And then his frustrations when they don't. All right. I don't know how much I'm going to come back to that. It's it just there's a lot of documents that speak um, that, that give you this impression. And I'll leave it to the military historians or anyone out there who who studied the Civil War a little bit more, what they think about that. I, I mean, my, my feeling of what I've read and I, and I did check out a Civil War history book from the local Zhejiang library, Zhejiang Tushu uh, Guan. That's the Chinese for library. They had a few books on the Civil War, and I, I picked up one for some reference points. Um, and, but reviewing some of this history, I, I think oh, in, in the bulk, it was a good thing um, for coordination and, and for, for sticking to the plan, right, and not being overly reactionary. I think that's what's most impressive is despite all these defeats in 1862, there, wasn't, there was total confidence, it seems, in Lincoln and the overall strategy and all the overall plan that, that did, did win the war in the end. Um, okay, a really important document here that really doesn't fit into the three categories I put, but I just wanted to mention that it's here if you're interested in this issue. It's sometime in February. I don't know um, when it was dated. Sometime after February 7th and before February 16th. It's a stay of execution, right? And I mentioned a little bit about Lincoln's attitudes towards executions of, of deserting soldiers, and a few of those will come up later in the in this in this volume as well. This, though, is the stay of execution for Nathaniel Gordon. Now, Nathaniel Gordon is, I believe, he's the only American to be executed for for engaging in the slave trade um, since since the slave trade was banned in 1808. Um, so this, it's a stay of execution. He doesn't like pardon. It's not that kind of thing, or it's not a permanent stay. It's a stay for like a couple weeks or something. Basically, um, he's basically telling, <laughs> it's an order to essentially execute Nathaniel Gordon at some point in the future. So, you know, he's not, a, he's not anti the death penalty, right? He's just thought of being used too recklessly by the military for, for my deserters. Um, and we'll get to those documents later. Um, so what Nathaniel Gordon was indicted for was, quote, being engaged in the slave trade. And then he was sentenced to death. Um, the date of that was supposed to be February 7th, 1862. And then he looked at the facts and apparently there was some kind of idea that there would be like an appeal or something. And because of that, Nathaniel Gordon didn't have time to make his final preparations. So Lincoln gives him like a... Um, a few more days. Oh, I do have the date for this. This is the 4th. This is uh, February 4th this was issued. 
So he says, um, in granting this reprise, it becomes my painful duty to admonish the prisoner that relinquishing all expectations of pardon by human authority, he refer himself alone to the mercy of the common God and father of all men. Right. And I, I just think this is a notable document because it was, as my understanding is that this was the only American to be executed by the U.S. government for for participation, participating in the slave trade in the years after it was uh, abolished. And, and that's, of course, uh, relevant to the overall outcome of the war, which was the, the ending of slavery there. Um, now, moving to, to March 6th, we have a, a message to Congress given. It's a very short message. It's only about a, two pages long. It's not like the longer State of the Union, which he issues in, in December of 1862. But what I, what's interesting about this is how much Lincoln realizes that the nature of the state is going to change as a result of this war. And he's sort of telling Congress that you're going to have to get on board this. You're going to have to be my partner in this, that these are changes that are coming because of the necessity of the war. Now, most of this document is about the very specific issue that he was playing with at the end of 1861. It shows up in the State of the Union address that he gave then, and that was this compensated emancipation plan, right? And mostly this message is, is kind of pressuring Congress to, to do that. And he's, he's basically saying money's not a concern, right? And I think that's one thing that you see in these documents is a disconcern with the money or the cost of things, right? He, at one point he says, like, even if we bought up all the slaves in the border states, it would be like the cost of like a week of the war or something, um, or a very small part of it. But there's a subtlety to this document where he is saying like, on the one hand, we're going to leave these issues to states and, and you know, we're going to have this compensated emancipation. You know, what does he, how does he say it here? He says, um, such a proposition on the part of the general government sets up no claim of a right by federal authority to interfere with slavery within state limits, referring as it does the absolute control of the subject in each case to the state and its peoples immediately interested, end quote. So it's, he's saying, despite this, I'm still pushing this policy, right? Uh, but later on, he says, war has been made and continues to be indispensable means to an end. The, a practical re-acknowledgement of the national authority would render the war unnecessary and it would cease at once. If, however, resistance continues, the war must also continue. And it is impossible to foresee all the incidences which may attend and all the ruin which may follow it such as may be seen indispensable or may obviously promise greater efficiency towards ending the struggle must and will come. And that the language here is very strict and, and very um, clear to Congress that this is just one example of, of things that are going to have to happen if this war is going to go on and the war is going to be won. And basically, you're going to have to accept it. That's how I read this. And it, it's, it's, it's a little bit, I don't know how subtle it was taken at the time, to be honest, but he kind of packages it in this this moderate proposal and then a, a, a throw out to state rights, but he immediately follows us up with a very, very clear commitment to doing whatever is necessary to end the war and then pressuring Congress to go along with that. All right, now I want to talk about a bunch of, kind of extending on this issue of emancipated, uh, compensated emancipation and to, to deal with some of the issues surrounding slavery. Um, that come up in these documents. There's, there's a lot of them. Um, um, now, in one document, this is to James A. McDougall, who I guess is in the Senate, where this is where he makes the case of, of how cheap it would be to free the slaves. He, he says, the cost of buying all the slaves in just Delaware, um, there's only 
some seven, seventeen, eighteen hundred of them. At four hundred dollars a piece, would cost seven hundred thousand dollars. One day's cost of the war was two million. So, um, and he basically adds it up that if you were to buy all the slaves in the border states in the District of Columbia, it would be the equivalent of seven. 87 days of the war, three months worth, right? That's a bigger expense, obviously. But he's still saying that in the context of what we're going to spend to suppress this rebellion, you know, the value we gain in by freeing these slaves would be more than the cost of, you know, it wouldn't, it would shorten the war enough to, to, to make it worth it, essentially. And he makes that argument in different ways to different people in these, in these documents. Now, he's pushing for this kind of compensated emancipation program from from Washington. But at the same time, he's continuing to chastise generals who do more aggressive policies towards emancipation in in the places where they're fighting, right? And we already saw that in the previous episode with what happened to General Fermont when he said in Missouri, any pro-Confederates, basically their slaves are freed. And Lincoln said, no, 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 that's going too far. And he actually ended firing Vermont for that policy. Um, now, he straight up revokes another guy's effort at emancipation um, in, in May of 1862. Now, this was the order. This was given by Major General Hunter. Um, and, and I'll just read it. This is, in the, this is in the South. So I think this is dealing with like the islands, like some of the islands on the, on the coast here were taken by the Union Navy and there were slaves there and, and there was kind of a policy to emancipate slaves in those regions. Um, and, and this is what the order was. General Order 11 by this guy Hunter. The three states of Georgia, Florida, and South Carolina comprising the military department of the South, having deliberately declared themselves no longer under the protection of the United States and having taken up arms against the said U.S., it becomes the military necessity to declare them under martial law. Um, and then slavery and martial law in a free country are entirely incompatible. The persons in these three states, Georgia, Florida, and South Carolina, here, heretofore held as slaves are therefore declared forever free. That was the order given by the military. And Lincoln uh, revokes it. Um, so the original order was given on May 9th, and Lincoln revoked it on May 19th. So it was only in place for 10 days. And what he says instead is, is you should basically support this some kind of compensation for people who are in like direct rebellion. Uh, and he actually points to a law passed by Congress or a joint resolution by Congress that said the United States ought to cooperate with any state which may adopt a gradual emancipation of slavery. Now, how that really fits with Georgia, Florida or South Carolina, which never would uh, pursue a policy like that. Um, but there's there's this, you know, here's the problem, right? If, if Lincoln's saying... You know, these states aren't in general rebellion. It's just the government and the leadership of these states, not necessarily all people. How does a general on the ground make a distinction between a farmer, maybe, who's, who's maybe not an active rebellion, meaning he's a soldier? You know, is he a pro-Confederate? I mean, is he pays taxes? I mean, where's the belligerence begin and end? And especially in an era of total war, it's hard to make that distinction. You know, the Emancipation Proclamation eventually liberates this question because all these slaves are, are declared free overall. So they're, they're not property. They don't have to be paid for. You know, they don't have to be, you know, you know, they don't have to be, you don't have to care about the property rights of these, of these Southerner slaveholders because those property rights don't exist anymore. Um, but at this time, he's still kind of 
doing what he did with Vermont and kind of stopping the generals from going too far with this, this policy. So that kind of conservatism is still alive and well, despite Lincoln pushing a more complicated emancipation program. Now, connecting to this is he writes a letter to Reverdy Johnson. So this guy, Reverdy Johnson, is, is a good example of one of those moderate um, unionists from the border states who wanted like a really soft reconstruction policy and, and was really attracted to the constitutional amendment that would have defended slavery, the one that was offered up in 1861 to try to stop secession. Um, and Lincoln writes him a letter, a private letter, where he says, he's talking about Louisiana, and I think Johnson must have had some anxiety about what was going on in Louisiana, one of the earliest places occupied, by this point, under Union control. He says, please pardon me for believing that it is a false pretense. The people of Louisiana, all intelligent people everywhere, know full well that I never had a wish to touch the foundations of their society or any right of theirs. With perfect knowledge of this, they force the necessity upon me to send armies among them. And it's their own fault, not mine, that they're annoyed by the presence of General Phelps. Now, at the same time, though, he does tell this politician that, you know, that he's not, this may not be the policy forever, right? He always keeps his his options open. He writes at the end of his letter, I'm a patient man. I was willing to forgive on the Christian terms of repentance and also to give ample time for repentance. Still, I must save this government if possible. What I cannot do, and of course I will not do, but it may well be understood once and for all, that I shall not surrender this game, leaving any available card unplayed. Now, of course, it's in Louisiana that, that there was more movement towards emancipation. Um, the the general in charge of, of Louisiana at the time was, was this guy named Butler. Um, now this letter, the next letter here, this is from July 28, 1862, a very important letter to Cuthbert Boulet, um, where I think Boulet was like the U.S. Marshal for, for that. And he was saying that, that basically you're offending the Unionist slaveholders by, you know, basically, basically implementing the kind of emancipation policy or allowing emancipation policy to be implemented in Louisiana. This is going to offend unionists in, in Louisiana. And Lincoln replies, you know, it's a fairly long letter, but one thing he says, quote, is, is, quote, they will not do this if they prefer the hazard for all sakes of destroying the government. It is for them to consider whether it is probable I will surrender the government to save them from losing all. If they decline what I suggest, you scarcely need to ask what I will do. What would you do in my position? Would you drop the war where it is? Or would you prosecute it further with elder stock squirts charged with Rosewater? Would you deal lighter blows rather than heavier ones? Would you give up the contest leaving any available means unapplied?" End quote. And here we see kind of the kernel of the Emancipation Proclamation. And remember, he, he the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation is only a, like a month or so after this, right? It's after the Battle of Antietam. So that's um, September. So yeah, we're looking at just weeks from the Emancipation Proclamation being preliminary one being issued. And here he's saying, I'm going to use whatever means necessary to win the war. Very similar to what he said to the, this politician from Maryland, but in harsher and more direct language, I think. And not to beat a dead horse, but in the another document, July 31st, 1862, to August Belmont, he writes, Broken eggs cannot be mended, but Louisiana has nothing to do now but to take her place in the Union as it was. Bearing the already broken eggs. The sooner she does so, the smaller will be the amount of which um, that will pass mending. This government cannot much longer play a game in which it 
it stakes all and its enemies stake nothing. Those enemies will understand that they cannot experiment for 10 years trying to destroy the government, and if they fail, still come back into the Union unhurt. If they expect in any contingency to, have any, to ever have the Union as it was, I join with the writer in saying now is the time. Unquote. Now, he doesn't talk directly about slavery here, but obviously that's on the backdrop of all this, right? That, that this is your punishment for leaving the Union, right? This is, if you force me to... Um, basically pursue a emancipation policy in Louisiana, and that's what it's going to be. Um, those eggs are are broken, and they're going to stay broken. They can't be mended. Humpty Dumpty can't be put back together again. I don't know the origin of that phrase. I heard it was the Napoleonic Wars, but Lincoln doesn't use it here, so don't worry. Um, just uses the egg metaphor. Um, now, that still leaves the question of, of what to do about freed slaves, former slaves, I should say. Um, he gives an address to the colonization on colonization to a committee of colored men. That's the title of the speech, August 14th, 1862. And it seems Lincoln's still a colonizationist at this point, at least publicly, as, as according to the speech. Now, this is a speech to the black people. And, you know, he, he, he has a very consistent idea. You know, I, it, I think his, his ideas on racial equality are, are complex. In the Lincoln-Douglas debates, he denied being for racial equality. I don't know. I haven't seen any evidence that he fully believed equality, like intellectual equality, uh, existed. But he talks a lot about equality of, like, aspiration, right, in the Lincoln-Douglas debates, equality of law as well. And here's what he says. He says, perhaps you have been long free all your lives. Your race are suffering, in my judgment, the greatest wrong inflicted on any people. But even when you cease to be slaves, you are yet far removed from being placed on equality with the white race. You are cut off from many of the advantages which other races enjoy. The aspirations of men is to enjoy equality with the best when free, but on this broad con continent, not a single man of your race is made the equal of a single one of ours. Go where you are treated the best, and the ban is still upon you. All right, so the statement saying is there's institutionally there's institutional racism is, is kind of what he says here and even if you go to a state where you have um, freedom you're not going to have equality right now this is a trojan horse confess this confession this acknowledgement of institutional racism in the united states um, bravo lincoln for acknowledging it but it's still a trojan horse in a way because he says well then why not leave right wouldn't it be better for you to leave and he talks about liberia and its successes and, and that's the old standby um, but he talks about other places, too, that they could go to. He says uh, uh, the Caribbean, places in the Pacific, Central America. Basically, and he finally comes out saying basically Central America is where you should go. It's too expensive to send everyone to Liberia. But Central America is nearby, right? Now, I that's why I kind of, that, that earlier statement where he talks about equality and how it's not achieved by black people, again, an important acknowledgement from a U.S. president acknowledging institutional racism and inequality in the country. But he's doing it to say, you're never going to find equality here. It's, it's kind of an unachievable thing. And I, I think that's, that's how he uses that acknowledgement to, to lead directly to, a, to an argument that, I, in my view, by this point, is, 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 is really, really dated. I mean, if ever colonization made sense, even politically, um, it certainly never made sense socially, morally, or, or economically. It's still, you know, by this point, you know, you, 
pretty soon you're going to have black people joining the army and fighting, right? Uh, it's not till the Emancipation Proclamation that you have the formation of black units, obviously, but you certainly have people contributing to the war effort. These are people fighting for the preservation of this government that Lincoln so much wants to defend, and he's still thinking of ways to, to kick him out. Now, I don't know, if, again, if this is politics, if he's kind of keep talking this way because he knows there's still a lot of racists in the Republican Party. Um, so, anyways, um, one more document about... Uh, well, actually, I got, I got quite a few more documents since I've been looking at my notes here. So um, just moving on on this, though. Uh, a very important letter to Horace Greeley uh, from August 22, 1862, where um, it's, it's like one of the more quotable uh, of Lincoln's moments. Or it's a quote you often hear when talking about Lincoln's views on slavery. He said to Horace Greeley in this letter, It would be those who would not save the Union unless they could at the same time save slavery. I do not agree with them. If there be those who would not save the Union unless they could at the same time destroy slavery, I do not agree with them. My paramount object in this struggle is to save the Union, and it's not either to save or destroy slavery. If I could save the Union without freeing any slaves, I would do it. And if I could save all of it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and letting others alone, I would do it also. What I do about slavery and the colored race, I do because I believe it helps save the Union. All right. We've heard this before from Lincoln, right? This sentiment. It's, it's pretty much there consistently throughout his, his career up to this point. I just, I just want to know when he makes this decision for the Emancipation Proclamation. We know he talked to people in Congress about it before the Battle of Antietam. We know he was waiting for a victory to issue it. And we know from his letters to the people in Louisiana and to the, to the generals in Louisiana and his attitude towards Louisiana is that emancipation may very well be the price the South pays for for fighting this war. Still to Horace Greeley in this, uh, what I, I presumed he thought was a off the record, on the record statement. I mean, you know, it's the media after all Horace Greeley's in the, in the media, you know, thinking it's, it's essentially still his public position, but did by this point, did he change his mind? Um, you know, it's weeks, the Emancipation Proclamation is weeks away at this point. But anyways, it's an important document, this Horace Greeley, August 22. Um, 1862, one that's often used as uh, to show Lincoln's perhaps indifference to the issue of slavery. Now, a document we can look to for a little bit more clues about where his mind is, is, is dated um, September 13th, 1862. And this is uh, a reply, a conversation he's having with um, some abolitionists or, or pro-emancipation folks from Chicago who issued a memorial and, and the document itself is actually like a newspaper account. So it has Lincoln quoting and then some kind of um, journalist summarizing what Lincoln says at a few points. It's not quoted verbatim as well. And he gives the same kind of nuance that we're used to seeing from Lincoln on this issue. Um, but it's, I, I do get the sense of a little bit more, again, setting the ground for like something like the Emancipation Proclamation. You know, he comes... It's, clear saying that slavery is the root of the rebellion, right? Or it's sin qua non. The ambition of politicians may have instigated them to act, but it would not have been, it would have been impotent without slavery as an instrument. Acknowledging that the war, the purpose of the war is slavery, right? And part of the significance of emancipation was it takes away what they, what they could ever hope to gain, right? I mean, of course, independence could still secure that, but that becomes less and less likely as the war drags on, right? So any hope of 
any reason to continue fighting for like a peace that could uh, let them keep slavery, that that chance becomes less and less as the war drags on, right? And the Emancipation Proclamation uh, gives them less incentive to continue fighting if if full independence is not achievable. He says later in this document, quote, the toleration of that aristocratic and despotic element among our free institutions was the inconsistency that nearly wrought our ruin and caused free government to appear a failure before the world. And therefore, the people demand emancipation to preserve and per perpetu perpetuate constitutional government. Um, and then later on, he even says, like, it once was a very an issue. Slavery was was something that could decide, tilt the balance of power in the border states. But that's past. And so we're freed now. We don't have to worry about Maryland or Kentucky or Missouri going to the Confederacy anymore. So we don't have to really care about their feelings about slavery quite as much. And, and so I think there's a lot here that, that again, hints pretty strongly at, at a change in policy. So let's jump to it. The date for the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation was September 22, uh, 1862, five days after the Battle of Antietam, that victory he was waiting for. And the victory that that he got, I mean, it was the battle itself was more of a draw, but it did lead to Confederate armies leaving Maryland and skedaddling uh, back to Virginia. Now, there's a few parts to this document. First, there's the general justification for it is just the war, yeah, essentially. But he, you know, of course, as as I think most people know who have, you know, even just got from high school, I suppose. The Emancipation Proclamation didn't free slaves in places that that were occupied by the Union or the border states, the places still loyal. So it's really places under Confederate control. So as, as people often notice, it didn't free a single slave, right? Well, I don't think that's quite true because it did give a, a greater incentive for slaves to run away. And so it, it created a context for slaves to free themselves with much more confidence. Um, now, part of this document, though, does deal with those other places. So it's not completely forgotten. He says, um, you know, the states states may have voluntarily adopted or thereafter may voluntarily adopt immediate or gradual abolishment of slavery within the respective limits. The effort to colonize persons of African descent with their consent upon this continent or elsewhere will be continued. So he's saying we're going to continue this policy of, of gradual emancipation and possible colonization in these other places. But this policy, of course, the Emancipation Proclamation is only for those areas still in active rebellion. And then the document just says on September, or I'm sorry, on January 1st, this this will be issued, um, right? And and that's it is. So it's, it's kind of the threat. Now, another part of this is, is, it, is, is a document that or another part of this document is actually in the text that, that he says will be approved on, on January 1st. Okay, um, I think that's enough on, on the slavery issue. A few little bits may come up, but let's move away and, and go to another topic that I, I alluded to earlier in this episode, and that is, is how the war started to change American society and, and leading to a stronger state. I, I think that's another, you know, that's one of the two major interpretations about the impact of the Civil War. You know, one is kind of the, the end of slavery, right? This is, you know, part, you could look at it as part of world history and the emancipation across the Atlantic world in these, in these decades or specifically in American, uh, in the context of American history. But either way, it's certainly a big, big important event. The U.S. was the largest slave power in 1861. 
but the other interpretation is it's kind of it leads to the modern America in various ways. And one one characteristic of the modern state is is bureaucracies, control of currency, a lot of uh, legal authority over society, improved methods of tax collection, all, all these things we associate with strong states, right? Now, one element that gets a lot of attention uh, is Lincoln's suspension of the writ of habeas corpus, right? Habeas corpus, not, you know, I, it's, I, I, my understanding of it, it's, it's just your right, if you're arrested for something, to be put before a judge within a short period of time to to explain, you know, to explain why you're there, why you're being held. And if they don't have a good reason, they have to let you go, right? And Lincoln suspended that uh, during the war. And here we have this document signed uh, 24th of September, two days after the Emancipation Proclamation, suspending uh, the writ of habeas corpus in respect to, all, quote, all people arrested or who are now or hereafter during the rebellion shall be imprisoned at any fort, camp, arsenal, military prison, or other place of confinement by any military authority or by the sentence of any court-martial or military commission, end quote. I, I read this as not as a general suspension of habeas corpus. It's it's specific. It's not saying, you know, if you're arrested for murder out in, uh, you know, Missouri or something. It's It seems to be for prisoners of war, other people kind of captured, and for people, you know, under court-martial, right, deserters or whatever. So that that's who it seems to be for. It doesn't seem to be mostly, and he says it's for the suppression of rebels and insurgents and their supporters in the United States. Um, but it's just another element of the strengthening of, of the of the U.S. government during during the wartime, right? This this act, uh, this this policy, and he does this without. It's just a proclamation, like the Emancipation Proclamation. No congressional um, say in it. Now let's jump ahead. I'm coming to the end of my, my thoughts about this, about 1862 and, and Lincoln's writings from 1862. But I wanted to jump ahead to to his annual message to Congress, his, and we call these now State of the Unions. I, I think that would have, what, what, I, think it's the, I think it's that address, the constitutional requirement that presidents from time to time, you know, give their advice to Congress. Dated uh, December 1st, 1862. So the law has changed since, um, since the, uh, the, the previous uh, annual address. And Lincoln realizes this, and that's why I want to highlight it. He write, writes, or he says to, to Congress, uh, this speech, is, as far as I know, was given in person. Um, quote, the Civil War, which has so radically changed for the moment the occupations and habits of the American people, has necessarily disrupted the social conditions and affected very deeply the prosperity of the nations which we have carried on commerce that have been steadily increasing throughout the period of the half century, end quote. Um, so he's acknowledging something, that, that America has been transformed by this, this war, right? Transformed in its, its politics, in its, the way its states operates, um, in you know, its occupations, right? People having different jobs. People who are farmers were now soldiers or, or sailors or or generals in some cases, right? Grant, he was, of course, he had a military career, but I think he was a shopkeeper before he, he went back into the military. Um, so that's kind of the theme here. Now, a lot of it is is kind of the run-of-the-mill stuff you would expect, talking about international relations and, and, and all these things. And, of course, he reasserts the permanence of the Union and his constitutional argument for, for pursuing this war. Um, now, what else does he put here, though? There's a few little things here which are which I didn't know uh, about this. Uh, 
Now, one, actually, this I sort of knew, but I, I forgot. I didn't think much about it. And that is, of course, Lincoln, while he's fighting the Civil War, while the United States is fighting the Civil War, they're fighting wars with, with Indians. And he acknowledges here um, growing restlessness among Native American communities and states. Essentially, let's call them what they are. They were states, independent states in territory that the U.S. claimed under the like, Louisiana Purchase. Um, he, wrote, he says to Congress, the Indian tribes upon our frontiers have during the past year in manifested a spirit of insubordination and at several points have engaged in open hostilities against the white settlements in their vicinity. The tribes occupying the Indian county, county south of Kansas renounced their allegiance to the United States and entered into treaties with the insurgents. Those who remained loyal to the United States were driven from the country. The chief of the Cherokee had visited this city for the purpose of restoring the former relations of its tribe with the United States. Unquote. That's, of course, in Oklahoma, the Cherokee by this point were, were mostly in Oklahoma. Um, so the Indian Wars are going on, and we'll say more about those, I'm pretty sure, in the next episode, um, especially with uh, the execution of a large number of, of uh, I believe there were Sioux who were engaged in, in insurrection against the United States. Another thing, now this I really didn't know about, was he issues up, he actually offers up a proposed amendment for the Constitution. And... You know, I looked around for this, and normally when you think about like alternative Thirteenth Amendments, you know that that you get the the one that was proposed in 1861, which would have defended slavery where it existed, right? That was the Compromise Amendment. Of course, it never gets accepted, but Lincoln considered it. He actually does suggest. He says, "I recommend the adoption of the following resolution and articles amendatory to the Constitution of the United States," and he actually issues four, three. Three constitutional amendments, which would have been, I guess, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. Good thing they weren't, because these suck. But um, for one's pretty good, but two of them sort of suck. Um, I don't know. I, I think even though he's passed the Emancipation Proclamation, he's still thinking about these compromises for these border state slave owners. That, that's what I don't like about them, is that these basically are compromise measures um, compromise to slaveholders you know loyalist slaveholders perhaps but still screw them um, one of these basically gives the power of to the president to issue bonds uh, to states to to pay for slaves to buy slaves right that's why it's a compromise right it's like we're not gonna we're gonna, we're gonna free the slaves in these border states but we're gonna pay for them right so you don't lose out the second, now this is the one, yeah, I guess it was, you know, better. It's not as good as the 13th Amendment that actually we actually ended up with. But it, it said, all slaves who shall have enjoyed actual freedom by the chances of the war at any time before the end of the rebellion shall be forever free. So what this is saying is, like, if you achieved uh, your freedom, you know, thanks to the Emancipation Proclamation, running away, whatever, you know, you can't be re-enslaved after the war. Right. Of course, the 13th Amendment was better. It just uh, kind of solved the problem once and for all. Then the third was basically Congress paying, appropriating money for colonization. So that's these three constitutional amendments he proposes in the State of the Union. And I never heard about that. Obviously, I wasn't surprised to see them necessarily because he had been talking about these things, especially colonization and compensated uh, emancipation in the border states. But he was trying to, you know, 
at least he's offering up. I don't know how serious he was about it. I don't, I don't have any evidence that he really pushed it aggressively through Congress the way he did the 13th Amendment that, that was finally passed. All right, just two more things, and then I'll, I'll, I'll sign off. One is I don't want us to forget the reality of, of empire in the back of this war. And I guess I kind of already mentioned this with um, the, the issue with the Indians. Um, there's a lot. The West is an important, not maybe not an important, I mean, the far West is not an important front in the war, but it's important in the Civil War for other reasons. Uh, one is this Indian Rebellion. Another would be things like the Transcontinental Railroad being um, completed. And, and yet another would be the, the Homestead Act being passed in 1863. So all of these things, the conquest of Indians, which would continue in the decades after the war, uh, the railroad, the infrastructure, and the, the encouragement for settlers, white settlers mostly, to, to move to the West, all this, is lay, all this ground is laid out during the Civil War, right? And he actually writes a letter here, a message to the uh, to, to the Senate, but it's on the, the question of, of the Indians in Minnesota. Now, as a result of um, what's claimed here, according to this document, I don't really know the details so much of this event. Um, let me look them up. Okay, from Wikipedia. Um, what do we got here? The, uh, so there was this Dakota, it was a Dakota uprising. Um, in, in the end of 1862. It comes to an end sometime at the end of the year. And there were these trials, right? Um, so the trials, this is from Wikipedia, the trials for the Dakota prisoners were deficient in many ways, even by military standards, and the officers who oversaw them did not conduct them according to military law. The hundreds of trials commenced on 28 September 1862 and were completed on 3 November. Some lasted less than five minutes. No one explained the proceedings to the defendants, nor were the Sioux represented, represented by defense attorneys. Uh, they were all convicted, not for the crime of murder, but for killings committed in warfare. All right. But Lincoln here in the document itself says, I have carefully examined the records of the trials to be made in view of first ordering the execution of such that have found been proven guilty of violating females. So all of these people were, were sentenced to death. I think it was a few hundred, right? And, and Lincoln said, there's only like 40 that really are going to be put to death. Right. So it ended up being 38 were, were executed. And this, this, this all happened on one day, on December 26, 1862. It's the largest mass, mass execution in U.S. history, performed on a single scaffold publicly. Right. Um, now, two others, two Sioux leaders, were later escaped, but were later captured, returned to the United States, and hanged in 1865. So that brings the number up to 40. Um, now, this document, this letter, message to the Senate, is basically saying I've commuted the sentences of, of most of these, but kept these, these 40, right? Um, so, yeah, it's whatever you feel about Lincoln, it's, he's certainly an imperialist still, and he certainly is supportive of, of the suppression and the conquest of, of these independent peoples living in the West. And... And, and, and it is what it is, right? Um, but Lincoln's responsible for the largest mass execution in, in U.S. history. And that's, in, you know, we, we got to put that in the context that he was also very willing to commute the sentences of, of deserters who desert in, in, in wartime. Um, so maybe these 38 were really bad dudes. I don't know. 
Uh, Lincoln apparently thought so. So, anyways, that's that's that. I, I I I don't know. Let me know what you think about this, or if you know anything more about it, and can give more context. I would, I'll share what you can tell me about it with with the others uh, in a later episode. Really, not much more to say. There's a there's there's Lincoln basically offering up his support and encouragement for Congress to admit West Virginia as a state. That, would, of course, will happen in 1863, um, and that's going to be important for Reconstruction. All right, the the that in Louisiana and and some of the islands and there's there's the other places er, occupied early in the war that become really the the experimental places for Reconstruction. And I don't know if I'll get to it. I I don't have that volume on Reconstruction. I know the Library of America issued a volume. They have, I think, five volumes of Civil War documents that they've issued. I think I have all of those now, um, but I don't have the Reconstruction ones. So it, it might be a while since before I look at those. But it's a really important part of American history. And if you haven't read Eric Foner's book on Reconstruction, please do it. Um, there's some others I could recommend, but that one really is the place to start. Um, or or Du Bois, Du Bois's book on Black Reconstruction in America. I mentioned it in my series on Du Bois, but we didn't look at it. I may have, I think we looked at a few passages of it, but not the whole thing. But he's the first to, to really aggressively look at, at Reconstruction as a, as a positive good. Um, and then, of course, Foner kind of builds on that argument. Um, I think that book was written in the 90s at some point, but it was a really, really good book. Um, anyways, uh, that's all for now. So uh, in the next episode, we'll be looking at 1863. Um, obviously, that's the, that's the year of the Gettysburg Address. So we'll, we'll keep that in mind. We'll keep these other issues in mind about uh, slavery, although in, large, in, in some, some way the, the slavery question's on its way to being resolved uh, in Lincoln's mind in terms of U.S. policy towards these runaway slaves and the contraband and all that. But, you know, it doesn't go away fully. Um, we have uh, the Homestead Act. We have, uh, what else, uh, the Battle of Vicksburg, you know, the, the military campaign. So there's still, there's a lot to talk about, um, even though we've, we've, we've kind of gotten past what he's most known for, perhaps is the Emancipation Proclamation. So anyways, let me know what you think about these issues, these aspects of Lincoln. Is there something I really for, forgot? Is there some important aspect of Lincoln's um, career as president and commander-in-chief that, that you think is really important to, to mention? Let me know. You can leave a comment below or send me a, an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Um, so that's it for now. I'll see you next time when we look at Lincoln and now 1860. We'll find what five and mauling our railmaker statesmen can do. The people are everywhere calling for Lincoln and liberty too. Then up with a banner so glorious, the star-spangled red, white, and blue. We'll fight till our banner.